Hello, welcome to Evidence for Faith. It's your host, Michael Lane, and we're continuing in our series here on Christian living. Uh, this has to do with one of the pillars having to do with truth, um, as we have our ministry with the four pillars, science, um, history, archaeology, the Bible itself. We're going to be branching into that one, of course, today, as we do with all of our lessons, and then truth. And in this, we're talking on a series on how do Christians, how are we supposed to live in this world? And and basics of Christian living. This lesson, I'm going to warn you right now. This is um, this is strongly PG-13, maybe even possibly R a little bit in the rating system here, because in Christian dating, we're going to get into some very um, serious uh, uh, talk here, dealing with sexuality and with some specifics of sexuality. So, um, just as a warning for anyone who's got little kids around or, or whatever. This is a lesson that I've, I have frequently done for youth groups, and I've done this with college groups, and occasionally I've done this with, with adults. But it's one that uh, I have done very often, and even when I did this with youth groups, we always sent out parental um, a, a guide to this that we're going to be talking explicitly at times and about sexuality. And um, many times I've encouraged the parents to come and listen as we go through this together. But we're going to take a look at Christian dating. So I know it's a, it's a hard topic, um, but it is one, it, it not just is dealing with, with uh, Christian dating. There are some great um, lessons in here dealing with marriage also. And we're going to be having a lesson on uh, marriage following this one. But um, before we get into the marriage, I thought we should have a lesson on dating. And this is a lesson I wish more and more teens would hear. Um, high school and college students, and even nowadays, as times have um, evolved here where, uh, with how culture has been changing, it almost seems like middle school needs to hear this kind of material also. But I'll let you parents um, judge on that one, on how you want to go, but this should give you some good ammunition. So that's it on the introduction. Let's open in prayer, and let's ask God then to do the teaching again, and also to to help us uh, see what his word has to say about this Christian dating. Um, what is it about? What's it like? Father God, we come before you and we just ask for your guidance and help today as we explore this controversial topic on Christian dating. It's one that it seems like the church is very quiet on. They don't like to talk about this very often, or if they do, that's it's so dogmatic we often many times hear more opinions than we hear from your word. So as we explore this, Lord, we ask for your Holy Spirit's guidance and just help with this to make our minds clear so that we can live and sacrifice our bodies as an act of worship for you. So we do this to honor you and to glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen. Christian dating. Yeah. Interesting topic. You know, surprisingly to many Christians, the Bible seems to say very little about dating. I mean, if you go to a concordance, you're going to find the word dating in there. On the surface, it appears to many people, and I've had discussions with many youth leaders and, and even pastors on this at times, it appears that God gives very little information about how to date or what to do when you're on a date or even how far physically he permits couples to go. Now, those who have learned to seek the Bible for guidance, as I often say, the biblical, the Bible has 
biblical applications for every aspect in life. And this is one you're going to find out the Bible does say a lot about it. But a lot of people think that there's not much here, and so that they're often left on their own personal decisions, uh, and they let their own personal ideas guide them on what they think they should be doing and stuff. On that, let me tell you a story. I'm going to be talking about this throughout the, the this lesson, but I want to tell you about a true story that happened uh, just a um, number of years back. It was a, a night. It was a Sunday night, actually, I still recall. I was working at a Christian camp here in Northwoods, and I was the one who was teaching the summer staff leaders Bible study. And after we did the Bible study, I don't remember what the topic was, had nothing to do with this. But afterwards, I was approached by three male students. Now, these were college students approaching me, and they asked for some guidance. They told me that they were doing a, a group Bible study among themselves on dating relationships. And they said that they were shocked to discover that the Bible seemed to lack information on this. And as we're standing there, as the people are are filtering out of the room, others were still around and stuff, um, the question that was bothering them the most was this. And they said, how far physically can a guy go with a girl? That was the question. And so um, I said, well, let's continue this uh, um, in a different place away from everybody so we can talk about this. And we moved on to a different area. We got to a, um, a room all by ourselves. It was just the, the four of us standing there. I said, now, repeat your question to me. And they said, how far physically can a guy go with a girl? And I asked them, well, if you've been looking in the Bible, um, I asked them what they found. They said, we haven't found hardly anything. One of them actually added it seemed to him that everything was permissible as long as the action could not get the girl pregnant. Now, this startled me as I knew this young man was actually studying to be a minister. And that's what he gave me as an answer. So they said to me, they asked, you know, what do you say about this? Well, let me ask you, do you think God's word is totally silent on dating? Obviously it's not, it's really not. God's word is not silent on dating and physical attraction before marriage. There's a lot in the Bible on this, but you've got to search for it. And apparently a lot of it comes from one chapter, which we'll get to in the book of Ezekiel, that many, many adults have never even come across, apparently, from what I, my experiences have been. So as we get into this, and I want to go back to that story at times, tell you more about it and, and stuff and how it continued through the thing. But let me just approach this uh, to you who are listening right now um, on this podcast. What is the modern approach to dating? Now, that we're talking here from a Christian's perspective. Remember, this series is Christian living. So what is the modern approach to dating? Well, for one thing, the Bible has little to say specifically on dating because there's a good reason for this. Until the 20th century, most cultures did not date like we see dating and marriages being made today. Marriages throughout time have mostly been arranged. That is something that started back in the days of Genesis, even with Abraham and stuff. And many parents in, in many cultures, particularly the Eastern cultures on this planet, still arrange marriages for their children. So dating is more of a modern institution. As we see it today, especially in this Western world, it is a new invention uh, designed on the premise of finding a spouse or having fun or finding sexual release. Now, I have taken a lot of surveys. I've talked 
you know, over decades to teens specifically on this and college students seeking information on what they're doing. As a school teacher in a public school, I had, that was a great place to pull data and stuff. And basically, I, I sort of can put it into dating into that category, finding a spouse, having fun, sexual release. It seems that those are like the three key things. Um, and also in this culture, if you're single, you're sort of expected to date. And this has become the norm, especially if you trace this back sociologically to the 1960s with the sexual revolution when it descended upon our culture. Now, some may say that the basic philosophy of modern dating is entirely unbiblical. I have heard that from some pastors. They say dating is really um, unbiblical. I don't agree with that um, because you're going to find this, uh, this topic mentioned at times in the Bible, though not the word itself. But um, they often view it as dating is like playing to playing the field. Um, and dating is, uh, to a lot of people in our culture today, it's playing the field. What are you playing for? To discover. Discover what? Discover what one wants. How many teens I've asked and college students I've asked, why do you date? And it's like, I'm trying to find what I want in, in a spouse. Um, or people have responded to me, I'm searching for someone to meet all my needs and desires. I got to tell you, just not teens and young adults have said this to me. I've talked with, um, I've spoke many times with uh, singles, single men retreats and um, even at times single women's retreats where I've heard that exact same thing. I'm looking for someone to meet my needs and my desires. Or I've heard people say, I'm trying to find the right person who's for me. There is the mindset pretty much for dating. And let me explain that dating and courtship, courtship, they're not the same thing. Dating is more of a modern institution. Courtship goes back hundreds and hundreds of years and centuries and stuff. Um, I've explained now what the modern motif of dating is, the idea of dating. So what do I mean that dating and courtship? What's courtship? How they're different? Well, courtship generally means being together in a structural protocol that allows both parties to get to know each other before encountering emotional and physical entanglements. You'll see, if you take that definition, <laughs> that is very different than dating in our Western society. That is not the same thing because it is structured, it's often supervised, and um, it does not Im in involve a tremendous amount of physical or emotional tangle, uh, tangles and tinglements and things. How many times I've had high school students that just totally just come to my class and they would just be in tears or whatever, why? Usually my first question is when a girl was sitting there crying, um, okay, did your boyfriend just break up with you? Because that was the norm. I mean, they're so wrapped up emotionally into things. But what is the biblical approach to dating? The Bible provides authoritative guidance, I do believe, for any issue, for those who are sincere and conscientious believers, and the purpose is to glorify. How can we best glorify the Lord in every area of our life? This would include dating and courtship and marriage. How do we glorify God in every area of our life? And the key concept of any true Christian should be to glorify God in all that we do. And we get instructions from Scripture on this. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 15 through 16, I'm going to read this out of the God's Word translation to get clarity. Um, from infancy, you have known the Scriptures, 
they have the power to give you wisdom so that you can be saved through faith in Christ Jesus. Every scripture passage is inspired by God. Now listen carefully. All of them are useful for teaching, pointing out errors, correcting people, and training them for a life that has God's approval. So the Bible does have information for this. This includes, uh, and this is written to Christians, it includes for all Christians, whether you're single or married, the Bible's going to give you guidance on things. So we must look to the word of the Lord to discover how best now to glorify him. How do we glorify God? Well, again, Paul writing under the influence of the Holy Spirit in the book of Colossians chapter 3, verse 17. It's one of my favorite verses in the world. Again, this is out of God's Word translation. Everything you say or do be done in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. But did you catch that? Everything you say or do, everything you do, every time you talk, everything like that, to glorify God. There should be something in the way that we do things that always glorifies God. In other words, we're not being impure or whatever. You see, the modern dating scene provides countless opportunities to meet members of the opposite sex. There's nothing wrong with that, who may or may not be potential marriage partners. True. The problem is modern dating is overwhelmingly today now driven by pure lust, self-centeredness, and is often emotionally, physically, and spiritually destructive to one or both parties. I've witnessed this so many times as a youth director and plus as a teacher in schools. I like how one marriage counselor said that when choosing a spouse, earnest Christians should, should consider these two passages of scripture among others when uh, which stress how important it is for any two Christians to be on the same page spiritually. And that is, one's from the Old Covenant, Amos chapter 3, verse 3, out of the English Standard Version reads, Do two walk together unless they have agreed to meet? Or going to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, we read, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? I do firmly agree that Christians should date other Christians. Now, I might have just offended a lot of people there, but I'm looking at Scripture, and this is what God says, that if you're going to get into a relationship, it's, you don't want to be yoked with an unbeliever. That's how this is. Um, that's what the Holy Spirit is saying. So if you have a problem with me saying it, hey, problem's not with me. Problem's with, with God. Also, I believe girls should try to find a Christian male who is more spiritual than they are. Because in Ephesians chapter 5 in particular, God tells uh, directions on marriage and stuff. And the male is supposed to be the spiritual leader of, of the two. So I think it's important for girls to try to find, if at all possible, um, a... a spouse that would be a spiritual leader for them also but that's not always the case i know that but i do believe christians should marry and date other christians i want to tell you though a personal story short little personal story concerning um me in my days back when i was dating i had a youth director whose name was mrs daniels very wise um older lady and she counseled me one day about dating she told me quote date only date a person 
who you would consider marrying, unquote. That really struck me hard when she told me that. I sat and we talked about it further, but boy, that really impacted me. <clears throat> Excuse me. It really set my mind to thinking about why was I dating and who was I dating, et cetera, et cetera. She went on to tell me, as we talked more about this, that um, this would help me avoid getting into an ungodly trap. She herself had married once before, and it did not go well because she married somebody for the wrong reasons. But they got counseling, and they worked it, it all out and stuff. But it was difficult for her. Um, and she says, "This I wish I had known this, she said, when I was your age. She said that this would help guide me to clearly establish the seriousness of friendship and the level of our commitment to prayerfully seek and discover God's will in our lives. So she said, Michael, think carefully, because dating has to do with your spiritual, not just your physical, but your spiritual body. So when dating, a revealing question we Christians must ask ourselves over and over is this. What's my motive in dating? What's my motive for going out with him or her? Is my purpose to please and glorify God by serving other people? Or is my motive to get something for myself? Is my interest in dating to have fun, just to be entertained? Or is my motive going to be glorifying to God and helping serve others? Even if you are seeking your quote-unquote soulmate, as many people often call them, and someone um, you're looking for someone you could marry, is your soul, is your purpose solely to find companionship, physical and emotional fulfillment, social acceptance? Maybe all those are selfish. That's selfishness. Or are you looking for a companion that you can both work together to glorify and serve the Lord? Because if you're solely looking for the physical attractiveness and the emotional excitement to quench your desires of your sinful nature, that's all going to fade. Dating should be done with purity. Purity is the hallmark of any courtship between a Christian man and a woman. Purity, keeping each other holy. You must take care to guard another person's heart during the journey of dating and getting to know each other. Guard their heart. Whether or not it leads to marriage, you guard the other person. Establishing good physical and emotional boundaries will help both parties maintain the highest level of purity in a dating relationship. You see, in Paul's letter to the Romans, he instructs believers on how to, to obey uh, and behave. In Romans 13, verses 13 and 14, this is again out of God's Word translation for clarity. We should live decently as people who live in the light of day. Wild parties, drunkenness, sexual immorality, promiscuity, Rivalry and jealousy cannot be part of our lives. Instead, live like the Lord Jesus Christ lived and forget about satisfying the desires of your sinful nature. Now that passage right there should be a great guidance on how to date. Sexual relations, as Paul is talking about in this, sexual relations is a gift from God. Now there's nothing ugly or sinful about its proper usage. 
In fact, the well-known Bible teachers, uh, Dr. James Dobson, Dr. Gary Smalling, and so many others all agree that sexual relationships with your spouse is an act of worshiping God in marriage. I remember the first time I heard that, I was a little puzzled. That sort of raised a question in my mind many years ago when I first heard that, um, that um, I was a bit confused, as many people are when I tell them this, that sexual relations in a marriage is supposed to be a way of honoring God. And I know you're probably sitting here, how in the world is that honoring? Actually, it's a form of worship, as some of them, some of these Bible um, people will say, it's an actual worship experience. You might be saying, how can that be worship? Having sexual relations with your spouse in a marriage, how can that be worship? Well, let me put it to you in a parable. For instance, a person purchased a very special expensive gift for a friend. For simplicity's sake, we're going to say that it's a table saw. Nice, expensive, the best you could buy, like a um, perfect, the absolute highest marketed table saw. Now, you purchase this, this table saw, um, you get the best one money can buy, and you give it to a friend. Now, when this friend uses it to make like a cabinet, to make furniture or whatever, you see that he's using it for how you intended it. And even the fact that he's using it to build a cabinet, that makes you, the giver, makes the giver very happy. Why? Because he's using the gift, one, he's using the gift, two, and he's using it as it was intended to be used. Thus, in a way, the person who is building with the table saw you gave him is honoring you. Or let's put it on a different thing. Say you purchase a beautiful diamond necklace and you give it to your friend. A few days later, you see her wearing your gift around her neck and she's all dressed up. Um, she's using it how you planned. That makes you, the giver, very, very happy. Now, Michael, I'm not following. What are you trying to get across here? Okay. Let's go back to the table saw for a second. Now say the person you gave that table saw to used it. Um, uh, well, he didn't use it right away. He didn't use it in the way that it was intended. He let it sit outside instead of in his workshop. He let it get covered in rain and snow. He left it uncovered. And when he did use it, he didn't use it to cut wood. But he used it for cutting cake in the kitchen. Sure, the, the saw cut the cake, but it didn't work properly. And through this abuse it was getting, it was getting dull, it was getting rusty, and it was getting ruined. Now, if you were the person who gave the saw, how would you feel about that? If you saw how he was using it, the special gift you gave your friend, he's not treating it with respect, he's not using it the way you intended, you become offended. Or the person with the diamond necklace. Say you gave it to them, and instead of using it as the way you intended and the way it was made for, they used it as a shoestring to tie together an old tennis shoe. And then they went off running in a muddy, dirty old lake. How would you, the giver, feel then? And what's worse, say she lost the necklace because it just couldn't hold the shoe on her foot. I don't think you'd be very happy with that because this dishonored you, her mistreatment of the gift that you gave her. Now, my friends, Sex is like that. When it's used properly as God intended, he's happy. It's an act of worship. 
we're using the special gift in marriage in the way that he designed and a way that honors him. And honoring God is an act of worship. Sex is God's gift for the unity of a man and a woman in a marriage. It's personal. It's private between the two married individuals. When we marry, God says that the two become flesh. That's Ephesians chapter 5, verses 30 through 32. Because we are members of this body, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. The two become one. What's more, God refers to his people and the church in the New Testament as his spouse and bride. You see, when we marry and are intimate with our spouse, that we're doing this because God set up the system and we're following his system. And he set it up at the beginning of time with Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve became one. And God uses them throughout his word as an illustration of what marriage is like and how our relationship is supposed to be with him. He often referred to the nation of Israel as his bride. If you're a Christian, you are married to Christ. You're the bride of Christ. Now, you can see this in a lot of passages in the Bible, in both the Old and the New Testament. Isaiah 54, verse 5. Isaiah 62, verses 4 and 5. Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 14. Jeremiah 31, verse 32. Oh, my gosh, the book of Hosea, especially Hosea chapter 1, verse 2, and Hosea chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, talk about how Israel is God's bride and how they commit adultery against him. But it's also in the New Testament, in Ephesians 5, 30 through 32, and Revelation chapter 19, 7, 8, and 9. All God is using the system of marriage to describe his relationship with us. And since we are the bride of Christ, we're not supposed to sneak off and get involved in other idol worship and other religions. We're not supposed to get into Islam, Hinduism, humanism, Wicca, the occult, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. We're to be faithful to the one spouse we have, and that is Christ. Likewise, if that's how the marriage is supposed to be set up, likewise, marriage, out, uh, sex outside of marriage with your spouse um, is wrong. That's like adultery, and God uses that example frequently. God said it numerous times. But let's answer a question here that puzzles us lately in the last few decades. What exactly is sex? What sexual relations are permissible in our society? In other words, going back to the original question of those three young men, how far can we really go? Now, it seems that... Um, long ago, it was pretty easy to determine what sex was. But in today's society, it's getting harder and harder to determine. As I have talked with and pooled um, students and college students, and even young adults at times, it's interesting some of the definitions I get for sex. But um, really, it's not a hard thing to determine what God is talking about. God has given us the answer to this uh, very easily. Just go back to the story I began with, with those three guys and uh, these men asking me how far can they go with their girls. Um, and I asked them as we were talking, I said, well, what did they determine from their study? And their reply was, uh, particularly the ministerial student. He said, we can go as far as we wish as long as we don't do anything to get her pregnant. That was his definition of sex. 
So um, it, it's, it's something only that a girl can get pregnant from. He said that's what it is. And in his opinion, uh, he's not backing this up with scripture, but from his opinion, he said, I can do anything I want as long as I don't do something like that. I asked him in this conversation what he meant by that. And he said, specifically, I can't have vaginal intercourse with my girlfriend because that could lead to pregnancy. But everything else he told me was totally okay. So I broached the subject. What about oral sex? He replied, oral sex can't get a girl pregnant. So that is okay. That's permissible by God. He even brought this up, which I thought was pretty interesting. He says, besides, President Clinton stated that oral sex was not sexual relations. Actually, I've heard that a number of times, particularly in the 90s and early 2000s. One of the other young men, though, standing there says, I'm, I'm not so sure about oral sex being okay, but I think petting or fondling is totally okay. I think God permits that. Uh, you don't necessarily have to see anything. It could be covered up. You just get to touch. The last fellow who was standing there, he's brought in his part of the conversation. He says, I, I agree with that point. He says, I do think that fondling is allowed in, in a Christian standing. He says, I don't think there's anything in Scripture that would say that's wrong. Um, but he says, I'm a little, I'm not quite sure about fondling below the waist. Um, fondling a girl's breast, I don't think there's anything in Scripture that's going to say that's wrong. So I think that's permissible by God. As I said, this is a very interesting lesson today. And these guys were very frank and about this because it was just the four of us standing there. I asked them then. These, these guys, okay, where'd you get the information for this? Where'd you get it from in the Bible? Well, none of them could give me any scriptural reference. The only thing they did was they quoted the seventh commandment, Exodus twenty fourteen, you shall not commit adultery. That was, that was the whole thing. And I said, okay, all right, that's in the Bible. I said, what is adultery? They responded, adultery is vaginal intercourse with someone who is not your spouse. Hmm, I said, that's partially correct, but I told them that what they said is true for only married people because they use the term spouse. I said for people that are not married, there's a different term the Bible uses. It's called fornication. And they were like, what's fornication? Well, um, I said, let's see what the dictionary says. So um, we got hold of the dictionary, and we looked it up. It was a modern dictionary and picked it up, and uh, here is the modern Webster's Dictionary's definition of fornication. Fornication is consensual sexual intercourse between two persons not married to each other. So I said, oh, so that means it's, that's what fornication. I said, now that's a modern terminology. I said, let's go back to Webster's 1828 Dictionary because that is a non-politically correct dictionary. It's actually the one I love to go to. I haven't Webster's 1828 Dictionary right here on my bookshelf I use constantly when I'm looking up terms to find out what's the non-political correct, like what is the absolute truth on these things. And here is the definition. I'm going to read it to you. Here's the definition of fornication out of the Webster 1828 Dictionary, and it reads, the sexual passions or the indulgence of lust of unmarried persons. It continues, even to the degree of sexual conversation between a man and an unmarried woman. 
Well, you're not going to find that in a modern trans uh, or a modern dictionary today, because um, we have become such a sexualized society. We've changed the definitions and meanings and stuff. Um, but that's what it basically means. That's and Webster was taking things from a biblical perspective as he put t- together his 1828 dictionary. And if you don't believe me, get hold or go to a library. It's got an 1828. You can buy them uh, an 1828 Webster dictionary, and you will see that he even did uh, dedicated his dictionary. The first dictionary that was made was dedicated to God, and he uses Bible references to give definitions of things because Webster believed that the Word of God was the absolute source of truth. Thus, he based his definitions on the source of truth. As I said, in modern Bible translations, you're not going to see the word fornication often. They put a different word in here. It's the word sexual immorality. That is often placed in our modern translations, but it basically is saying the same thing. It's sexual immorality. Immorality, not being moral. Let's examine, I'm going to give you a few passages here, You can, and we're going to read them out of the English Standard Version, but some of these passages to get a perspective of God's opinion on fornication and, and adultery, you know, being Im- sexually immoral. Here, here it is. It's, it's black and white right in the Bible. 1 Corinthians 6.18. Paul writes under the influence of the Holy Spirit, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his whole body. Take a look at Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissension, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's pretty strong. But remember, it said sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, and orgies. Mm-hmm. Or take a look at Ephesians 5.5. 5. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Now, you might be wondering, what's covetous? Um, That means a longing for something that you don't have, but another person does. And it's usually based on pride and greed. Let's take a look at Colossians 3, 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Obviously, sexual relations outside of a marriage is strictly forbidden. From these verses, it's, it's there. It's strictly forbidden. It's taking a special gift of God and misusing it, and it's causing problems, can often cause major problems later in a person's life when they do get married. I have counseled so many people, married and unmarried couples, and people and just individuals who weren't weren't married uh, about problems that they're having. And uh, a lot of times it comes down to guilt that they possess concerning sexual relations that they had prior to or outside of their marriage um, when they went too far with another individual. 
I know two couples in particular, married couples that were struggling in their marriage. And they came to me asking for help. And as I just asked questions of them, that's what eventually it came down to, that the, the lady in both circumstances was dealing with past guilt because they had um, got sexually active before they got married. And in both these cases, when I say sexually active, it wasn't having intercourse. It was fondling. In both cases, it was the guy just fondling her. And it was messing up their marriage. And in one of these cases, the people, this couple would have been married for over 10 years. And the other one, they'd been married over 15. 15 years of struggle in your marriage based upon this. Hmm. So I just said a few moments ago a statement when they went too far. It's a common statement that is commonly used today. What is going too far? What about fondling a girl's breast? Can she, she obviously can't get pregnant from it, from that form of sexual relations. Um, and our culture today says that that's not even having sex. It's just fondling and stuff, and it's totally okay. But let's go back. What does God say about this? Now, returning that conversation with the three guys, we started to have this conversation now asking that question. And I told them that fondling, I flat out told them this, that fondling a woman's breast was something that was just reserved for married people, not for unmarried. And they looked at me like, where can you find something to support that? I said, let's take a look at the book of Proverbs. Go to chapter 5. Here, Solomon is giving advice to his son about prostitutes. And he speaks, talks about fondling here. Proverbs 5, chapter 5, uh, verses 18 and 19. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer and graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. And they said, oh, it does say wife there. I said, yes, it does. Uh, It's important for Christians today to understand and know God's view on this topic. Here's some other verses. I'm going to give you a bunch of you. I'm going to read through them, not an English Standard Version, um, that might help you in your dating relationship. Like I say, the word dating is not in the Bible, but the premise is there. And here are some verses to study. If you want to get together with some other people or if you're um, uh, a teen yourself, you want to sit down and study this, take a look at these verses. I'm going to read them, but just look at a few verses I'm going to give you here. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22, God tells us, So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who, called, uh, who call on the Lord from a pure heart. 1 Corinthians 15.33, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. That's talking about dating. Mm -hmm. Not just dating, but just being in in relationships like that. How many times I've heard people say, well, I know they're bad, but being a Christian, I can bring them up. (laughs) It's so much easier for them to pull you down. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 7 reads, Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. 1 Corinthians 6, 18. Flee from sexual immorality. 
Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but sexual immorality, uh, and sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Going back to the book of wisdom, Proverbs 18, 22. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, 4, and 5 reads, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. This goes back to the parable I told you about the saw and the necklace. First Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. So this is, a, this is a really important one. This is one that I was given years ago, and I copied this down on a 3 by 5 card, and I kept it always someplace visible. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Whatever you do. First Corinthians 6, 13. Food is meant for the stomach and stomach for the food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Uh, we have first, uh, just lost my place here, I'm sorry. Um, we have, let me get my Bible turned here. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 2. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. You don't go chomping around. No, uh, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, by the brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Or how about Philippians chapter 2, verse 4? Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but to the interest of others. That's a great verse for dating. How about 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12? Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. How about James 4.4? 4? You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. That should make you think a little bit about how culture has changed today. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness. 1 Corinthians 7, 32-35, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord, but the married man is anxious about worldly things how to please his wife, and the interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit, but the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your 
uh, undivided devotion to the Lord. Oh, we have to go to Song of Solomon. How about chapter 8, verse 4? I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. In other words, there's a right time for this. 1 John chapter 2, verse 16. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desire of the eye, and pride in possessions is not from the Father, but it's from the world. Even Psalm 119, verse 9. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. Yes, the Bible. So, to answer the question those guys asked me, how far is too far to go physically when dating? They said to me, how far can we go? What does the, the, the Bible, we can't find that the Bible says anything. How far can we actually go? Well, I said, well, there's two places I want you to look. And... One of these we're not going to cover right now. You can look at it on time because this is getting long. Ezekiel chapter 16. But the other one is Ezekiel 23. We are going to look at this one a bit. Those two chapters, 16 and 23 of the book of Ezekiel, gives us God's perspective on lust, on fondling, on fornication, and sex outside of marriage. It is explicitly clear how God views purity and relationships um, outside of marriage. This passage does not primarily deal with just dating, um, but it does give us God's perspective on sexual activity outside of marriage in fornication and in lust. It is graphic. I'm going to warn you right now. It is graphic, but it is in the Bible. And we're going to read parts of Ezekiel 23, um, a large part of the chapter, it's going to give you the idea. Now, remember, this is, you're not going to see the word dating here, but we're talking about answering the question, how far can I go with a girl? We're going to see how God views it. He's going to tell a parable here. And in this parable, he describes sexual relations that he does not approve of, that are not holy to him. I'm going to read this out of the complete Jewish Bible um, so that we can get a little bit more of uh, uh, the Hebrew taste on this type of a thing here. Uh, so let, here we go. This is Ezekiel 23, starting at verse 1. The word of Adonai came to me. Human being, there were two women, daughters of the same mother, who were whores in Egypt. Each, as a young girl, they were whores. When they let their breasts be caressed, and their virgin nipples were fondled, their names were Ahola, the older one, and Holiva, her sister. They belonged to me, and they gave birth to sons and daughters. As for their names, Shamron is Ahola, and Jerusalem is Olivia. Verse 5, when she belonged to me, Ahola prostituted herself. She lusted after her lovers from Asher. Warriors, dressed in blue, governors, rulers, all of them good-looking young men riding on horseback. She gave herself as a whore to all of them, all of them, the elite of Asher. And she defiled herself with all the idols of everyone that she lusted after. She did not give up her whoring. She had begun in Egypt, where the men had sex with her, fondled her virgin nipples, and flooded her with their fornications. So I handed her over to her lovers, the men of Asher, she lusted after. 
they exposed her private parts, took her sons and daughters, and put her to death with the sword so that she became, a notor she became notorious among women for the judgments executed against her. Her sister, Aholiba, saw this. Nevertheless, she was worse than her sister in lusting and likewise in whoring. She left it, lusted after men from Asher, governors, rulers, warriors, dressed in to perfection, skilled horsemen, all of them good-looking young men. I saw that she had defiled herself. Both sisters had gone down the same path. She prostituted herself more than ever because she saw, saw wall carvings of the men depicting the, uh, the condition of in vermilion with sashes wrapped around their waist, flowing turbans on their heads. All of them looking like military men, the very image of men of Bravel, born in the land of Kadish. The movement that she saw, the moment that she saw them, she lusted after them and sent messengers to them in the land of Kadishan. And the men of Bravel climbed into her love bed and defiled her with their lust. She was defiled by them and then filled with revulsion at them. Thus she did thus did she reveal her fornication and expose her private parts when this happened i was filled with revulsion at her just as i had been filled with revulsion at her sister still she kept increasing her whoring remembering the days when she was young fornicating in the land of egypt yes she lusted after their male prostitutes who members are like those of donkeys and who ejaculate like stallions you yearned for the lewdness of your girlhood when the Egyptians used to fondle your nipples and care, caress your young breasts? Skipping down to verse 43. I thought, that woman, she's worn out from all of her adulteries, but they still go to fornicate with her. For everyone who went into her, just as men go into a prostitute, so they went in to Aloha, uh, Alola, I'm sorry, Olahla and Oholiva to these debauched women. Verse 45, nevertheless, there are righteous men who will judge them as adulterers and murderers are supposed to be judged because they are adulterers and blood dripping from their hands. For here is what Adonai Elohim says, summon and assemble to punish them, give them over to terror and plunder. Let the assembly stone them to death, dispatch them with swords, kill their sons and daughters, burn their houses to the ground. I will put an end to the lewdness in the land so that all women may be taught not to imitate your lewdness. You will receive the punishment your lewdness deserves and you will pray the penalty for your idolatries. Then you will know that I am Adonai Elohim. Now, th this is a parable to Israel, yes. But it still gives us a very, very wide-eyed view of how God feels about fondling a woman's breasts, viewing nakedness, porn, things like that. It, it's, it's here. And the thing is, this is coming from God's own lips of what his standards are. Notice how it said, handled her virgin breasts, virgin nipples. That's used in a very strong negative way. God is making it very clear that in his standards, handling a girl's breasts is grouped with lewdness and fornication. Notice that the phrase uncovered her nakedness. This tells us that a person, uh, this tells us for a person to not just perform the acts of uncovering, but even to just viewing nakedness 
from another in a lustful way is totally wrong and sinful. This would indicate like porn magazines and the internet and stuff like this, photographs um, today, or even being on a date and seeing it firsthand. God makes this plain, very plain. It's wrong. But I've had these guys ask me, well, why is God taking all the fun out of life? They actually asked me that. Why is God trying to take all the fun out of life? I explained to them, he's not taking the fun out of life. He's, he's protecting us. Believe it or not, such behavior impacts females more than it does guys. Touching a girl like that is just not sexual to a girl. It's emotional. To guys, it's not like that. But to girls, it buries into the emotions of their brain. This goes deep into their minds and their souls in a way that, to be honest, guys just often can't understand but it does impact girls. I've mentioned how I have counseled girls about guilt, and this is one area that I've seen that has impacted and caused so many pain, so much pain to so many women. And I've counseled, as I said before, I've counseled married people about this too. Marital problems sometimes are traced back directly to sexual sins. Girls, speaking to you right now, ladies, I implore you in the name of, of God, and in his word, not to succumb to this temptation. And if you have, stop. You can sense right now probably some emotional guilt that you've been carrying as you've listened to this lesson. Some baggage that you have um, maybe brought into your marriage or into your relationship with, um, with who you're dating or um, even with your family or whatever. And guys telling you, don't cause girls to sin like that. Both stay pure. Remember, in Matthew 18, verses 6 and 7, we read, But whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it's necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. Guys, don't tempt the girls like that. And if you have, you confess, you repent. And in God's view, if you repent, truly repent, you're clean in God's view then. He sees you the same way he sees Jesus. But it can really scar people is what I'm warning you. Going back to that story, you're probably wondering how this thing ended. Well, as we stood there and we went through this Bible study with in this passage in Ezekiel, we did both 16 and 23, and I pointed it out for them, and they read it, and I still remember two of them, the shocked look on their face, because they like, um, it was very alarming to them. In the language, uh, we were reading out of the English Standard, and the language that was written, and they, they quickly grasped, two of them quickly, quickly grasped that God sees such physical actions as they were just talking about prior as being okay, that God sees it as sin. They caught it very quickly, and they remarked about it. They also remarked that they'd never heard of this passage before. No one had ever shown it to them, no youth leader, no pastor or anything. They said we had no idea it was even in the Bible. True story. Not that very long ago, I got a call about 10 o'clock at night one evening. My wife and I were just uh, starting to watch the news on television. The phone rang. It was a student that um, 
I had spoke to her youth group many years before on this topic. And she was now in college. He was a junior or senior in college. And she was sitting with a group of girls in a Bible study. And that question came up. How far is too far to go? She couldn't remember what Bible passage we had read out of Ezekiel. She couldn't remember even if it was Ezekiel. She didn't know where it was. So she called me up. She says, do you remember when you were talking about how God is very explicit about how far a person can go? I said, yeah. Can you tell me where that's at? I, I'm sitting here with my group of girls. And I want to tell them this. I said, go to Ezekiel 16 and Ezekiel 23. And she, I could hear the pages in her Bible being turned. She starts, and there was a slight pause. I could hear background talking stuff, and I could hear her say, okay, this is it. Thanks. Goodbye. <laughs> it was just like that. Why? I don't understand why we don't teach this more often. But I haven't told you the final end to the story. I told you two of the three seemed to repent right there. The other one, the ministerial student, he saw it totally different. He said that this is found in the Old Testament. Ezekiel is a book in the Old Covenant and has no authority on us today. I agree that we follow a new covenant. I said that as Christians. But I said the same God who gave us the Old Testament gave us the new one. And if it goes against his character in the Old Testament, it goes against his character in this one. And I said, you can't really use that argument. If he felt that way about fornication in, in Ezekiel's day, he hasn't changed his mind on this because it has to do with, with um, impurity. And he's holy. I said, even in the New Covenant, in the New Testament, God condemns fornication. I told him five distinct times. In Matthew 5.32, in Acts 15.20, in Acts 15.29, in Acts 21.25, and in 2 Corinthians 12.21. I said, that's the New Covenant, you're told not to do that. His response, his response to this was that he wanted to believe that God has to keep up with modern times. He's got to keep up with us. Thus, this passage, even in the New Testament, he says it really doesn't matter. That it's not going to change the way he's going to treat his date, um, the girl he's dating, and it's not going to change his mind. He's going to live the way he wants because he said God's got to change and come to the modern standards. Now, I'll tell you, when he said this to me, my heart just sank because the girl he was dating was a girl I knew really well. He had made up his mind. And nothing God said was going to change it. Yes. Let me just close real quick here with some dating myths that I hear often. And I saw this on a poster. I don't know where this was, but I jotted some of this down many years ago. And it's, it's Christian dating myths is what it was called. I don't know who originated this, but I, there are some myths. Since we're talking about dating, um, I want to give you these myths. Christian dating myths. And the first one, God has one woman and one man picked out for you to marry. You are destined to be with that one person and God will guide you to him or her. That's a myth. Because the truth is some people die young. For one, there's more women on the planet than men. That doesn't even work out mathematically. And also, people who die young do remarry. Look at the story of Ruth. A second one, Christian dating myth number two. The Bible has clearly defined the guidelines for dating. Mm, no, We've, that's what this whole lesson is. Dating is a modern institution. It's not courtship. It's a modern institution. Yet God's word, as we have seen now, does provide important principles and facts to follow concerning a relationship with the opposite sex. A third dating myth. 
God will reveal to you the man or woman that you are going to marry the instant you meet him or her. <laughs> Love a truth at first sight. Yeah. The truth is, um, no note ever comes down from heaven or if someone comes up to you with an ID tag saying, oh, I'm supposed to marry you. <laughs> it's, no, I'm not saying that love at first uh, sight doesn't necessarily work. I don't know if they would call that love, but I do know people when they, they first see each other. I'm To be totally honest, the first time I can still remember vividly the first time I saw my wife and I became infatuated with her. And that was 44 years ago. Um, I still remember her and her long blonde hair hanging out of a window um, upstairs. As she had just arrived in the Bahamas. Christian dating myth number four. You have to be friends with a man or woman before you can date. It's, it's a good idea, but that's actually a myth. Truth is, this has not been the case since Genesis. Remember, in many cultures today, arranged marriages um, have um, been the primary way of getting married. Um, parents arrange it and stuff like that. That's the common thing. So that's not always true. No, that's that's not always true. Though being friends is very, very important. If you're going to be spending the rest of your life with that person, um, I've often said it's really good if you can marry your best friend. So that helps. Anyway, Christian myth dating number five, a man's sexuality is ravenous, a snarling beast that should be kept locked in a cage until he's married. <laughs> I'm sorry, I just... That's a little exaggeration because the truth is it's it, it basically is quite an exaggeration for most men. Uh, I'm sure there are some sexual predators that need to be locked up and or are locked up, but that's not a wholesome truth there. And then the last one, Christian dating myth number six. You might struggle with lust and porn, but when you get married, these temptations disappear. <laughs> no, they don't. <laughs> The truth is married people will still struggle with lust and porn because it's part of our sinful nature. I know a guy, a very dear friend of mine, that um, when he was young, he, he told me he struggles with porn, struggled with porn. And then um, he, he married a gal, very good Christian, nice Christian gal, and both of them great Christian individuals, um, awesome people. The thing is about, I don't know, about five, six years into the marriage, um, we were sitting one day and he, we got talking and um, he said, can I confide you on something? And I said, what's that? He says, you know what I thought when I got married, I'd never have that problem with lust and porn. And he goes, I'm amazed. It's just as strong as it was before. And I said, it's because it's part of our sinful nature. He says, I really thought getting married, I mean, he bought into this myth. Then when you get married, that kind of thing disappears. No, it doesn't. But God gives us grace, and God gives us the power through the Holy Spirit to defeat such actions. Just remember Colossians 3.17, whatever you do, you do for the Lord. Well, Lord, thank you for this time we've had here, and I ask that you would bless this and help everyone who listens to this long lesson. It's a difficult one, but it's one that is so important for us to hear today. So please, oh, Father, use this in a way that will glorify you, because that's why we exist, is to glorify you in all we do. Thank you. In Jesus' name and for his glory, amen. So until we meet again, my friends, take care, and may God bless.